Hey, this is Asia Dang. And this is Laura Varney, and you're listening to Heavy Topics with Lightweights. <laughs> we were both just, just looking, <laughs> looking at each happened? other to see who would start this podcast. Uh, you go. No, you go. No, uh, you go. But like all in the eyes. <laughs> we verbally didn't say anything. <laughs> that was weird. It's weird. Okay, I feel like we should kind of just like jump into this episode because it is kind of like intense and heavy, but also really informative. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really good one. Um, Just a little background, as I've talked about before on the podcast, I'm the health and fitness director for a drug and alcohol treatment center called One Method. Um, It's based here in Los Angeles. And today we brought on the founder and owner of the company, Cassidy Cousins. Uh, he's super knowledgeable just in the treatment world, the addiction world. Um, so he gives us some background on his history and then also the, just the world of like what it's like to be in treatment and what, you know, the kind of like science behind addiction, right? It's, I mean, I had no idea the complexities of such an environment. Yeah. I mean, I, cause I don't know any, I've never had a conversation with anyone who has, you know, been in treatment or whatever. And I just didn't, I didn't know, I didn't know any of it. And I mean, I always knew that you worked for a treatment facility, but I have to say, I'm like really proud of you. Cause you, I mean, we'll find out in the podcast, but you like, you make a difference in people's lives. Like it's crazy. Hey, thanks. Yeah. It's, um, it's really, really rewarding. Cause you get to see people come in in a certain state and like the changes they make and how they progress. And, uh, it's really a spiritual thing, like recovering from addiction, you know? So, uh, it's awesome. And it's not on me. It's really them doing the work. I'm just there to kind of guide them in certain aspects. So it's really cool. Well, as we've discussed though, in the podcast, there aren't yous in other facilities. So you're bringing True. in a different aspect of the recovery process. Yeah. Yeah. So we focus on, she's saying that because our, our treatment center, like I own it, uh, the treatment center one method folk is based around wellness. So it's based around fitness, nutrition, um, and overall wellness. Uh, whereas most treatment centers are more based on like the actual addiction. And so we try and get to like the root cause through fitness and nutrition which is crazy because I guess I always assumed that all the treatment facilities would address the root because if you don't I don't know how you would go like I guess like move through addiction yeah so I think a lot of places like advertise that they do that and a lot of places do try and do that through therapy and we obviously like have psychiatrists and psychologists and Um, all of that on staff and our clients go through a lot of therapy as well. Um, But I think a lot of treatment centers focus more on like you're an addict, like placing blame and telling the person to change a behavior rather than going like, why is this happening? Like, why is this your go-to behavior? You know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, it's really cool. But... We're going to read a review. Oh, okay. 
We haven't done that. I hope we have new ones. <laughs> I know. I'm going to check and see. If not, then I'll say, fuck it. <laughs> I know. We haven't gotten a new review in a while. Ready? We have one? Yeah. Oh, my God. Authentic and real. Five stars. Are we sure we didn't read this? No. Okay. Because it was just Thursday. <gasps> oh, my God. In a world full of podcasts that are nothing more than distractions, nonsense, and regurgitation. Oh my God. I love it already. I know. Asia and Laura offer fresh, honest, and open conversations about life and the unique experiences it offers. Cheers, ladies. Okay. I Whoa. feel like that's what we've been saying is that like every podcast interviews the same fucking people and talks about the same shit. Right. And we're yeah, trying yeah, to yeah. not, we're trying to do something different. But also that was the most eloquently yeah. written. <laughs> Seriously. Okay. I want to read one more. Okay. Is that okay? <laughs> no, I'll wait till the next episode. Okay, fine, fine, fine. You okay. have to wait. But yeah, I mean, that's that was exactly what we said in the last episode when it was just you and I talking. And that's the purpose is just like bringing a fresh new conversation. Yeah. Into your homes or to your car or to your ears. So yeah. I'm glad you guys are uh, recognizing that and appreciating that. Totally. Thank you so much for the review. And Remember, you guys, to subscribe to our podcast, rate and review. It really helps us to continue doing this. We are not making money. We're just <laughs> pushing through because we truly love this and we love having these conversations with people and sharing them with you guys. So keep doing what you're doing, rate and review. And if you um, have any suggestions for people that you would like us to interview, go to Instagram and direct message us at Heavy Topics. Yes, please do. All right. Well, thank you so much for coming, Cass. We're Thanks so happy that me. you're here. I'm going to give you a tiny intro and then I'll let you introduce yourself. Okay. My most rewarding of my jobs is being the health and fitness director for One Method which is a drug and alcohol treatment center of which Cassidy is the founder. This is true. Yep. So not only is he my boss, he's also one of my friend's husbands and the baby daddy to her beautiful little boy. This is true. So welcome. Um, and we are also drinking wine <laughs> in your presence. <laughs> Slightly ironic, oh, but you know. Super classy on our part. <laughs> but gotta stay on brand. Yeah, gotta stay on brand and... Yeah, so tell us a little bit about yourself. So thanks for having me. Obviously, I'm very excited to be here. Asia, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Glad I finally get to meet you. Yeah. So, yeah, I work at One Method and started it a few years ago, maybe four or five years ago. And prior to that, had started another program and have worked in like addiction and mental health treatment for about 20 years, actually 19 and a half or something like that. But... um kind of started where everybody else does like a basic understanding you know I suffered from addiction saw people suffer from addiction and went through my own process of recovery and treatment and so felt um, felt inspired and wanted to like pass that message along and started working in treatment and then sort of rapidly noticed that without disparaging treatment it was very remedial and kind of focused on um, drinking and using and like the really uh, exterior issues and wanted to 
start a program that focused more on what was going on inside, you know, like the things that were fueling the process of addiction and got into a, a sort of a bad deal, you know, in a sense. And, and, and I had a partner and he and I sort of saw things differently. He sort of saw the treatment through the financial lens and I saw the treatment through the human lens and not to make me altruistic or anything, but I just, at the end of the day, I wanted people to, to get something from the process. And, and that sort of broke apart, you know, our differences in, in partnership styles. And, and I started one method after separating from him, uh, it being kind of like my magnum opus, you know, sort of like my thing that was all the pieces of the puzzle that I've always wanted to put in place for people that suffered from addiction and, and mental health issues. And Laura obviously saw it from the beginning, you know, cause like when we first started, it was what, basically what we wanted to do was work it from the inside out. So we wanted to kind of like, so addiction, if you know, people don't really understand it cause it, it seems like it's a, it's a thing that's over talked about, but, under understood mm, so true yeah and i think that um if you really break it down to its nuts and bolts you know addiction is is just about seeking so we we seek to anesthetize you know feelings that are uncomfortable or past experiences um, we seek to self-medicate maybe we have bipolar or depression or you know something of that nature and um, we seek a spiritual experience you know we're seeking answers and you know to be quite honest like the fruit of the vine and, you know, the, the fruit of the poppy are really powerful pieces of that puzzle for a lot of folks. And they go through an introduction and it's euphoric, right? They're introduced to a drug and it's euphoric. But what comes with it is, at least for me and for all the people that I relate to, there's an answer in it. Uh, it sort of temporarily eases the doubt, you know, and it feels very straightforward. So obviously this is not, I'm sounding like you, you should do heroin right now, but that's, <laughs> that's not what I mean. That's Thanks not, for clarifying, <laughs> yes, Cass. Yes. Um, it's, it just, it does something for a period of time. And what happens in the process of using it is that you break yourself down. So you break yourself down mentally and then physically and then spiritually and then socially and then in your community and sort of everything kind of becomes wrapped around this self-destructive pathology. But the root of it is that you're seeking an experience, right? So what one method was about was creating an experience that was, that you could actuate anywhere. You know, that like, if you could, if you could be in your body through exercise, you know, and sort of finding a groundedness in the process of exhaustion and setting goals for yourself and sort of being in touch with your physicality, um, you know, feeling better about yourself from, from the outside almost, but really it's all kind of happening neurochemically on the inside. Yep. And then sort of rewiring your, your brain and starting to get like neurotransmitters flowing that were you know, affected by the substances and, and, you know, maybe predated the usage of the substances and get that kind of like on a healthy spectrum. And then to make that the root and the foundation of a clinical process that sort of addressed, you know, mind, body, spirit, and all these different aspects of quote unquote addiction. I mean, we don't even really talk, if you, if you look inside our program, 
you won't really see us talk about addiction as a topic that much. Very rarely. It's really just, it's the end result of a way of psychologically living in the world. And so we definitely want people to have a program of recovery, whatever works for them. But we want to give them the skills to be able to essentially replace that obsession and that compulsion. And exercise is like this perfect key. It like fits into that identically. And we get, you know, this culture around that process, which, you know, going back to the beginning, when I first started doing this, it was kind of like stubbing my toe and bumping into walls. Like it was, how do you bring this new thing? Because exercise science and addiction treatment don't mix prior to one method. It was not a thing. It wasn't integrated. People didn't apply the science of exercise. Because it was really rudimentary. Um, like which is too basic. Or? Yeah, it was in, in reality, it isn't right. It makes complete sense. And there's so much science behind it, but the basic thought of it sounds too elementary, right? Yeah. And people want bells and whistles. They want to pet horses, right. And have equestrian <laughs> therapy and they want to, you know, no disrespect. They want to have like wolf therapy and like things that sort of, um, justify the costs of treatment is that the way those are real things? These or are real. Yeah. yeah. So yes. real things in LA. Yeah. I need to. Okay. <laughs> I just want to ask. I mean, I don't know if I can ask this, but what is your clientele base? Because when you're talking about wolf therapy, equestrian, equestrian therapy, it's like, okay, so this is for rich people. Mm. So what's the solution for poor people? Like they just have to go through the whatever sounds like a not like a pretty shitty process of going through um i guess getting clean if you're saying like there's all these frou-frou options for people who can't afford it but what about the options for people who can't so that's 100 percent on target i mean essentially what happens in this country is if you can pay for certain types of treatment you're going to get probably better treatment than the clinical acumen of a low-end facility, right? But interestingly enough, low-end facilities, county-funded facilities, state-funded facilities, like when you see these settlements with Purdue Pharma and things like that, a lot of that money gets shuttled back in through the federal government and then down to the states, and they have some sort of programming that is quote-unquote free. And even within those programs, they'll mimic the paradigm, the treatment fields like standards and the way of doing things up to that point. So believe it or not, there's equestrian therapy in low-end programs. And there actually is wolf therapy in low-end programs. But some of it's even more ridiculous than that. And, and by the way, I actually think that there's a benefit from being connected to a horse. Horses are amazing. As far as its efficacy in treating alcoholism and, you know, the underlying issues that contribute to it, there's no evidence that says that it's particularly efficacious, right? So, you know, is, is being near a wolf a powerful experience for someone who's been locked in a room for a long time, you know, drinking? Sure. But as far as like the future, they're not going to carry a wolf with them everywhere and be like, you know, let me pet you now because I feel like drinking, <laughs> you know. So it, they, what happened is there was a uh, change that was necessary in my mind in starting one method. So it was like, when I say magnum opus, I'm not trying to be like, oh, it's amazing. It's the best thing that ever happened. It really was, this is my experience over the course of 20 years. What I've seen is that no one attends to the body. 
So we medicate the mind and we don't attend to the body. So basically, we address the symptoms of the issue and we don't deal with the core problem, right? We're just medicating. And there's so much research, especially now, that shows that the two are very, very, very connected. Very connected. I mean, even if we just think about the mind and the gut, if you just focus on those two things, like that says enough, you know, that's enough evidence to be a basis on like, hey, we need to be focusing on the body in order to clear the mind, in order to heal the mind and the soul and to get to those issues that are the core problems for addiction, right? Exactly. And, and, and here's what's interesting. So we just figured out in like the last decade that neurotransmitters can be stimulated by the gut, right? That there's this whole biosphere down there. And that essentially, if you're unhealthy or, or something happens that sort of tilts you in one direction or the other, you may actually suffer from depression because you're not going to get enough serotonin. We had no idea of any of this stuff. On top of it, from a neurological point of view, we're starting to see that all these neurotransmitters are essentially essential to healthy functioning, right? And so we have all the clinical stuff. We know how to treat trauma. We know how to treat um, alcoholism. We know how to treat, you know, basic relational discord and codependency and all this kind of stuff. We know how to clinically address it. But if I tell you how to put on a shirt, but I never give you an opportunity to put on a shirt, it's just a concept. And so you got to get into the body. We got to get into this core issue and then work it from that point of view. So if I still, after embracing exercise and nutritional wellness am suffering day-to-day suicidal ideation and, and contemplating my own demise, then yes, you know, an antidepressant or a mood stabilizer is completely appropriate. And I should be diagnosed as such and given that in a non-habit-forming hemisphere. But anything short of starting with what you have, the mechanics and the building blocks that are already here, is shortchanging essentially what might be possible, Right. Okay, so I'm going to jump ahead a little bit because I think it's the perfect segue to talk about this. I do want to go back to your personal experience with addiction because I think it's important just relating to the rehab and everything else. But because we're talking about the body and the mind, how does one how is one method set apart from other programs in the sense that like, what do you guys do? What do we do to work with the body and the mind? So, well, we're the only program currently in the nation that applies exercise science and treatment plans that are physical, right? So we actually have a physical, uh, meaning you have a assigned protocol that was initially designed by a neuropsychologist specifically for different mental health conditions. And then we apply that treatment protocol in the gym. So you have a trainer and you work with them four days a week. And in the beginning, you know, it actually is very similar from client to client because most of our clients aside from like the pro sports and the athletes that we have that come in, they've been sort of neglecting their bodies. Uh, so they don't have like a, a base to sort of work with. So that's one of the things where we sort of stubbed our toes in the beginning. We sort of made this really kind of um, robust physical training regimen, you know, based on neuropsychology and all these different neurochemicals and all this kind of stuff. And then we saw people could like barely, not to be barely walk on yeah. a treadmill. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like literally they couldn't, you know, and so we had to kind of um, create a program that, that put them in a position where they could see results and at the same time start to work on some of these issues. So just to clarify, mm-hmm. um, 
the thought is, is that when you get them into their health and their fitness and exercising, that will then kind of replace their addiction to substance? That's a part of it. Okay. Yeah, so it's all integrated. While you're doing the exercise program, you're working with your psychologist one-on-one, doing therapy. You're working with a case manager. You're working with a nutritionist. You're working with a trainer. You're working with a chiropractor. You're working with a substance abuse counselor, a yoga teacher, a breathwork instructor, a meditation specialist. But, sorry to interrupt. I don't know if replace is the right word. Like, it doesn't replace the addiction, right? It, It focuses on getting down to like, what's missing? What are you missing? Because from my point of view, because if any of you guys listening don't know this already, I'm a trainer for Method. I'm the health and fitness director. So that's that's my area. That's what I do. Um, the clients coming in are missing something. Mm-hmm. You know, you're an addict because you're missing something. You're lacking something. And that's not something tangible necessarily. And so by coming in and working on health, working on fitness, these people are gaining confidence in themselves. Correct. Which is a huge piece of like what's missing inside, right? Exactly. So it's less about replacing an addiction with something else and more about like, let's get to the root cause of why you have an addiction and like what's going on inside. Exactly. And if you go back to the beginning, so if addiction on this really fundamental spiritual level is about seeking, right? So let's say, and we can go into all the details of that. It's really simple. But if it's about seeking and I'm trying to have an experience outside of the one I have day to day in my body, then exercise creates this space where you can connect spiritually to seeking your own betterment. And it's a really tangible thing, right? So this is, so this is what the science says about treating addiction through exercise as a medium. It says that it's a pragmatic, uh, verifiable approach, right? So think for a second. If I said, listen, Asia, I know you've been suffering and you really want to be a blonde, right? And, and every day you've been thinking about this and you've been suffering since you were a teenager and you've just always wanted to be blonde. And now that, you know, you're an adult, I want to help you understand where that came from. You know, why did you always have this desire to be something other than yourself, to look different or be a different way? Well, the reality is, is if I don't actually address what triggered that, what messaging you got when you got it, that created this circumstance where you felt like being blonde was better than being who you were, then everything else that I do is ineffective. I can tell you how to dye your hair. I can tell you how to be proud of who you are. I can tell you how to feel good in your body. I can tell you all this stuff. But if I don't actually address, you know, and again, this is all hypothetical, but a parent that said to you something out of the corner of their mouth that they didn't even mean in such a way to be critical that you as a child who had no filter for that information took on as somehow you were bad. And having the beautiful hair that you have today is bad. And so if we don't address that and what the exercise does, so if I'm seeking the solution to this inner discomfort, it gives me tangible, observable results that nothing else will. Like on day 10 in treatment, if I'm working on you with this issue that you've got, it's not like you feel better on day 10. Now that we're talking about this fact that your parents probably 
promoted this idea that contributed to the self-destructive perception of self. But if I'm doing something that actually you're like, you know what? Wow, I didn't realize this. I cut my hair this week and look how beautiful it is. The exercise gives people that are coming in with nothing to believe in about themselves, something tangible that they can say gives me confidence, exactly what you just said, and is results driven. Every day you go in there and you do more than you did the day before. It's like you improve every single fucking day. So now I'm doing all this deep, deep work on a mental health standpoint, trauma, anxiety, bipolar, depression, terrible relational issues, all the things that most addicts have experienced on one level or another, big T trauma, little T trauma, all these issues are coming up, but I've got this space, this space that's my own space with a trainer who says, you're doing great. And I'm seeing improvement and it just gives me, and not only am I fatigued and sleeping better and starting to fire all these neurotransmitters, but I've got this actual data. I can look in the mirror and say, I like what I see. I'm starting to like that. And that's the fuel, right? So it keeps me motivated and in, in the process. I'm not sure if I got off topic there, but. No, it's good. So we all, like there's all, everyone has moments in their life where someone says something to us that affects us for the rest of our life. So what what is that moment where it affects someone so much that they turn into an addict? So there's, there's really interesting science on both sides of it. Um, the first is that there are multiple factors that contribute. So if Laura and I were twins and Laura went to a home in Alabama and I went to a home in you know, West Virginia, sorry, West Virginia. But if I went to a home in West Virginia and like drank Mountain Dew every day and had like a terrible upbringing and she had this wonderful Southern upbringing with like politeness and all that. Anyway, so if we're twins and separated at birth, blah, 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 blah. Just so you know, the one that's ha- that has the more um, unhealthy environment is more likely if genetically wired. If, bo- if our parents were addicts prior to our separation and that I go to a home that's unhealthy, I have a greater likelihood of de- developing addiction than Laura. So we know that environment plays a part, right? The, the other piece is that y- you have to consider for a moment that there's many, many people, uh, two of them being you, right, that can do substances on any given night, on any given Sunday, on any given Friday, whatever it is, right, <laughs> and have a good time and stop. Like you don't have what we call a phenomenon of craving. Like you may be like, no disrespect, but you may be like, that Coke was amazing or what, you know, whatever it was, right? But you're not going to be like, where the fuck is that Coke? Right. <laughs> and who the fuck do I have to kill to get it? It's like, that doesn't come up, right? No. And so there's a difference for those that are wired and predisposed to have addiction. I always say it's the difference in like, Hey, I can go to a restaurant and have a glass of wine and leave half of it on the table and walk away. I literally can't even fathom that. Exactly what any alcoholic or addict will say to you. Like, yeah. if you're, I, mean, if I would sitting, never leave a glass of uh, well, wine. Well, that's why we're here. Oh I'm actually God. an interventionist. <laughs> right. and now we're going to switch like, gears. Asia, right. Asia, you have a problem. <laughs> um, no, but that's, that's, I've heard so many addicts and alcoholics say that to yeah. me. And it's just, yeah, it's just the thing. It's like, I don't. It's not something that you need that you crave. That's. I mean, you imagine for a moment that you are drinking to complement a meal, right? That it's like you're pairing a wine with your meal. I I would never do that. I drink for an effect. Period. End of right. story. Like so, you drink to get fucked you know, up. Okay. Period. 
Like there, I can't even imagine not doing that. And that's another piece of the puzzle. So environment, this phenomenon of craving, right? And then almost inevitably, and I say this with the utmost respect, because I think that there's, there's a real question about if someone's an addict or someone's not. So let me just say, I'm more impressed with the two of you than I am with me, right? And what I mean by that is that not knowing anything about you, you're wildly successful in your careers. You've, you've done amazing things. And I'm going to get to this in just a second. But, wildly. I well, like that. Well, Say that again. Uh, wildly should, successful. He should hang out around us yes, more yeah, I'll be like your, your pump man <laughs> or whatever you call it. <laughs> He's so, our hype man. Yeah, hype man. So I think that, you know, it's more impressive to me that, that you're able to go through what you've gone through in your life, right? Because we all get these messages. Things happen. Uh, sometimes really, really bad things. And it doesn't trigger that domino effect where you end up, you know, unable to function without a substance, right? And that's, that's really amazing. On the other side, there's this magical thing that happens when you do suffer and you have addiction. And, and the saying is Talmudic, but, it, but it, basically it's in the place where the repentant stand, even the most saintly cannot reach. And it's a religious statement, but what it means is that those that experience grace, like deep, meaningful grace, essentially like when they've gone from the shadow world into the light, something amazing happens for them. And they, they emit this energy and this, this sort of like healing radiation that has an, an incredible effect on the world. And they feel obligated, it, obligated to it because it's life or death, right? So both are true. It's amazing not to have it and to have gone through all those things and developed the systems of, of control that you have. And it's amazing to recover once you do have it. And such a good point. And here's, here's the point that I wanted to make about you. So, so here I am, I'm in the gym going to a little bit of, a, of the personal side. I go through a bad divorce. As I mentioned, um, I had a bad partnership, right? And I'm going through a breakup in my marriage. I'm going through a breakup in my partnership. My entire world is turned upside down. My son is diagnosed with autism. I've got three kids now, but two at the time. Uh, like a four-year-old and a two-year-old. My son is diagnosed with autism and all these things are happening and I don't know where the fuck to go. And it starts to come into my consciousness. I haven't drank or used for at that point 13 years, which by the way, I was always nervous about that number. And I think I self-manifested on, on a lot of different levels, this negative 13th year um, that turned out to be the best thing in my life. But my point is that I was going through this rough patch a lot of people that I know that have experienced the kind of things that I went through, they don't come out on top, you know? And about three months into just this morbid depression, uh, as a matter of fact, I thought I had like an aneurysm because I had such a deep pain in my head and I couldn't sleep. I lost wow. 40, 40 something pounds. Had, you know, you, you've seen this. It's like, it's trauma. And I had no idea how to fix it. And my buddy said, go to the gym, come with me to the gym. And so I went to the gym and Laura was there. Right. And so I was like working out and I was like noticing she was working out really, really hard. And then there was some other, there, it was a trainer driven gym. And I had this moment where like after a few months, people started to know who I was and they said hello and good morning. And I felt like a part of this community and it was separate from like anything else in my life. And people were like on this trajectory. This is what I found. Like fitness folks and nutritional folks, for the most part, yogis and all these kind of people, there's something really community-based in their experience in, in the world. 
they do like yoga retreats like you just did and all these and and that happens in the gym and so then i was like this was my little trick this is my trick so i was like okay if i build a clinical program to address addiction dual diagnosis and mental health issues what if i add into it something that no one else has considered that you don't just have to have a community of recovering people in order to feel connected to the planet what if I give them this other option where they can connect to people that are on the fitness uh, hemisphere and start to like connect them? So that's another thing that happens. They go to the gym. By the way, our folks don't like to go to the gym when they come here. That's not their number They're one. They're not stoked on it at no. first. <laughs> I mean, think of how Can you imagine detoxing from fucking heroin? You know, you're vomiting, you're sweating, you look like shit, you feel like shit. I've had people come in who literally their skin is like gray. They don't even recognize themselves. But three weeks, I always say, give it three weeks. Just give me two weeks. Give me three weeks. Three weeks in, it's like when are I'm we talking going? to a different person. Can yep. we stay longer? When are we going? Can I go a fifth day? And now here's another thing. And then folks in the gym are like, hey, bro, you know, mm -hmm. good job. Well done. And it's like there it's such a beautiful, magical thing. And and the we don't talk to the clients about that. Like we're not like, hey, we just say we're a culture of wellness and fitness. And but that that touch tone where you're like you connect with someone on some other level than we did dope together is just so healing and so powerful. So Laura, I my point of all this is that I was suffering in the gym and I was suffering in my heart. And I got connected to the gym that Laura was in. And during the course of being there, connected with Laura, you know, and then connected with other people. And it was, it was just, it was what I needed, you know, and. And it's cool because you experienced that firsthand. Granted, you weren't using at that point, but, you know, you experienced that community firsthand and then you brought it over to your clients. So you're able to say, like, I know how this feels. Mm -hmm. I know how the physical aspect feels. I know how the spiritual aspect feels. And I know that that is that it's not just me, yeah. you know? I hadn't been in the gym for 10 years at that point. Yeah. Okay, I want to back up just a little bit. Um, Are you going to pour another glass? Will you please? <laughs> I, I mean, someone's got to get drunk. Oh, we will. <laughs> we'll finish that, don't yeah. worry. Okay. Oh, easy. <laughs> easy. Um, I want to hear more about your recovery story, your addiction and recovery story, because I think it's really relevant into how, like, you designed one method mm -hmm. and just to how you, I mean, even how you speak to clients. I think it's incredible. Just I could sit there and like listen to you speak to clients all day because you have something deep within you. And that doesn't come from like, like you said, not overcoming those hurdles. Like you've clearly been through a lot. Mm. And so I want to hear a little bit more about that. It's it's interesting because like I, I feel like I'm failing in a lot of areas of my life today. Um, and most of them have to do with my intimate relationships, right? So I don't want to acknowledge the recovery process as like the preeminent manifestation of perfection because it, it really hasn't been that. But where it started for me is quite different from where I am today. So today failing is like not kissing my son long enough. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not like, um, you know, stealing all my parents' shit and ending up in jail. It's not like, right. you know, so it's when I say failing, it's like I want to improve and I want to do better. Um, which is like a human thing. Yeah. Everyone. Yeah. 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 And so it, yeah, you know, it, it's really interesting. I, I did, I was an avid athlete. 
I was someone who was dedicated to sports to the extent that I remember there was these girls in high school that like had a little crush on me and um, they ran into the locker room. Like, so I trained really, really hard and I was always in the locker room and I was always on the field and uh, basketball, tennis, soccer, soccer being the main and uh, was always after hours in the locker room. And so long story short, these girls kind of knew that and came into the locker room and one kind of took off her shirt and was like, you know, let's get groovy. And, and I was like, no, 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 I got to get off the field. You know, I got to shower up and get to like the next thing. I was so focused on exercise. As a high school student? Swear, my, I <laughs> swear Damn. to God. So here's the thing that came up. I was like, so I was, it was my obsession. It yeah. was, so yeah. my, I shouldn't probably say that because I think there's still a statute, no statute of limitations on it, but I grew up in a really fucked up environment. Um, and I was like, I'm not fucking doing that shit. I'm not doing drugs. I'm not doing alcohol. Sports is my way out. I'm going to fucking be an athlete. And I just committed fully to it. And so I didn't drink and I didn't use until I was 18, period. I didn't have sex until I was 18. The reason that I'm saying this is because I was 100% dedicated to this thing, this program that I had, which was athletics all the way. That's it. End of day. And the reason I still tell the story about the girls is because, yeah, as a high schooler, I was so like boxed Laser in. Laser focused. Yeah, boxed in to, you know, my nose was pressed to the window pane of life, as we say, but I was not participating. So um, basically what happened was I drank one night. Like at a party? Yeah. My buddies got together and they're like, dude, why don't you fucking have a beer? And I was like, why don't I have a beer? So I drank. I got drunk. They offered me weed. I smoked weed. I asked them if I was going to die. They said no. I had a great time. I heard the ants marching. Within 30 days, I'd smoke crack. My mouth got yours. What? That fast. Whoa. Within. And Laura, you want me to, to take edibles. I've been trying right. to edibles. <laughs> I think you'll be then, okay. Then 30 like, days later. I've never even smoked weed. <laughs> what is this going to do? Yeah. I'm going to be at one method in 30 yeah, days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'll be like there. She's living under a bridge. I'm like, what happened, Asia? <laughs> um, it was fast. It was really wow, fast. Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah. Utter fear. Like, that's why I'm saying, like, I was like, Am I going to die? Because I'd never felt anything like that I have a question, though. Is you, as a 16, 17, whatever-year-old, being that laser-focused on sports, was that just another addiction? And then you moved, and then you felt a taste, like you got a taste of this other thing that maybe fulfilled a need. And do you know what I mean? Was that like a sign of having an addictive personality already? Definitely a sign of having an addictive personality. Okay. Um, I think that... What's important for everyone in this room to to realize, including myself, is that addiction, substance use disorder, alcohol use disorder, these are very specific neurochemical, physiological, spiritual manifestations. And let me give you an example. Um, you ever date the wrong guy? I mean, I mean <laughs> is that a fucking question? <laughs> Hello. Yeah. And then you ever date exactly the wrong guy again? I mean... right and then you do it again right and you so this is called repetition compulsion right so this is a this is a freudian concept and and freud essentially thought that there was this period of time in your life that was formulative exactly what you said asia that somebody said something to you somewhere that affected you so so deeply you carried it for the rest of your life you can remember it like it was yesterday 
what it smelled like, who said it, where you were, all of that stuff, right? So Freud believed that the idea of being in a relationship that mirrored for you that you have less value than you do essentially was a message that you probably received as a child, not to point out uh, anybody as right or wrong, but a message somewhere in your childhood that gave you the inclination that you were not of value, right? And so I constantly date these guys or these gals that reinforce this for me. And why do I do that? Well, I do that because I'm supposed to extricate myself from that story. I'm supposed to say, no, I have value. And no matter what it takes, I'm going to walk through that in order to be connected in a loving relationship with someone who admires me and to whom I admire, right? So circling back just for a second, if I was going to be in a bad relationship after a bad relationship after a bad relationship, you can say it's addiction, but it's not addiction. Addiction is a neurochemical, physiological, mental response that has characteristics that are identified in diagnostic manuals. And if you don't have that, and you call something an addiction, before you know it, everybody who needs an answer is saying, I'm a fucking addict, I'm yeah. a fucking addict. And it's like, no, sweetheart, you're not a fucking addict. You're a human being who's seeking an experience. You're compelled to have this repetitious relationship with this self-destructive wall. Let's talk about it. Let's, let's look at that and normalize it and realize how the fuck do I get you to believe in yourself and recognize the value that I know that you have, right? So, yes, it was an obsession, my athleticism. It was a focus, but it's not an addiction. Mm. And I just wanted to clarify that because I think. Yeah, I need to, I want to understand that better because also there's this thing where it's like, isn't alcoholism self-diagnosed in a way? Like you're not an alcoholic unless you kind of say you're an alcoholic. It's the absolute fucking problem, right? So, so here's, here's the thing. So if I don't, identify that my problem is here, I will never treat it. Right. So no one else can say, I mean, you can, like as a clinician, you can look at someone and say, yeah. this, 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 he's an alcoholic, yeah. right? Yeah. Okay. The same way that you can look at me and say, Cassidy, stop eating those sweets. Right. Hey, you want to take it all the way? This is what you got to do. But it doesn't matter unless you go, oh yeah, I am an alcoholic, so I need to do this. I need to stop eating all those sweets. Yeah. I want the six pack, right? I want to I want to go to the gym and I want to get the results unless I say to myself, I'm committed to recognizing that my problem is that I'm eating these sweets, so the work is not going to pay off in the dividends that I want it to physically. I have to self-diagnose myself. So then if from if like a family member believes like Laura is an alcoholic, but Laura doesn't believe she's an alcoholic. Like, what do you do then? You go on a journey. I mean, that's the journey to surrender, right? So essentially, you know, and this is, this is what I believe in it. And, it, and it's sort of just a, a personal perspective. But so this is all about a journey. You know, like addiction is about seeking and life is about learning and our goal, I hope, and I think it is, is for each of us to be the highest version of ourselves, to evolve into the best we can be. And so the journey to the commitment to practice what it takes to be that requires a surrender. 
it requires me to look at all these different doorways that I consistently choose and open that I know don't help me out anymore. Like, I don't need to be in a fucking bad relationship. I don't need to try to change someone who's not invested in me the way I am invested in myself. I don't need to pursue heroin anymore. I don't need to pursue alcohol anymore. I need to close the door and have a new experience. And so I think that, you know, what it sort of comes down to is that you have to have a journey. If I tell, if I tell Laura she's an alcoholic and she doesn't believe it, all that will ever happen for her is an echo of what I said. And then eventually the echo in the chamber of her life will manifest into a moment where she has, as we call it, a moment of clarity. And she's like, I'm an alcoholic. But doesn't that usually happen when you hit rock bottom? Unless, unless a family member or a friend like forces you, forces you to go into treatment or to try this modality of getting sober, you don't really do that unless you hit, hit rock bottom usually, right? It used to be. So when I said rudimentary, that's what I meant. So what it used to be is you had to be a broken individual and listen to every fucking thing I said. So you're an alcoholic. Now let me tell you, that's a behavioral problem. And I want you to change all your behaviors and take all these new actions. Mm -hmm. That was treatment for over a hundred years. Your behavior is the problem. Not you have an underlying issue, not you have trauma, not there are things that, you know, none of that. Your behavior is an issue. It's a moral condition. You need moral psychology, right? So here, here's the interesting thing. So one method is exactly the antithesis of that. So what if I don't want you to do what I want you to do? What if I don't have a definition of recovery for you, but I want you to define your own definition of recovery? Maybe your definition of recovery is I'm not going to date those asshole guys anymore. I'm going to date a semi-asshole guy for a while, right? And then I'm going to date a non-asshole guy, whatever. The steps in the right direction are allowable because that's your journey, your journey to the nice guy or whatever it is, right? So that's what one method is. One method is not about you must do what I say and abstain from all substances. One method is about let's look at why you use the substances. Is it still working for you? That's such a softer and more relatable approach, by the way. Than being like, you're fucking up. Yeah. Like, you're wrong. Yeah. Let's change it. But while they're at one method, they're in detox, right? They're not taking anything. Or you're like, eh, let's just cut it, cut it back a little bit. No, no, no. We're not a harm reduction modality. So we're not, you're Explain not. Explain what harm reduction is. Um, harm reduction is, so let's say you're on heroin. Then I give you the equivalent of heroin in a pharmaceutical form. And I say because you're taking it from a doctor and not doing illegal activities to get the heroin and injecting it and all this kind of stuff, that you're in a better position. You're still addicted to something. It still does exactly the same thing as heroin, but you're not suffering as much harm, right? And you're not going to cause as much harm. And you're in a safe place, safe environment. Correct. So what we are is a, uh, we're actually an abstinence-based model. So to answer your question, detox is a, is a period of time where you can't just cold turkey. You can't take someone off of their drugs m more often than not without medicating them. It's very unsafe. can be extremely can be deadly. So you're yeah. like weaning them off. No, you, you replace. So you, you typically will put in, the doctors will put in medications that are essentially designed to sort of allow the body to adjust. And then you wean those medications. 
So you never give someone but they heroin. Don't, but they don't mimic the drug that they were Correct. taking. Correct. They address the physiology of the drug's absence, the withdrawal symptoms. So it makes them feel better than if they were to go cold turkey? Oh, yeah. Yes, but that's not to say that they don't feel like uncomfortable yeah Yeah. right if you're detoxing you're you're most likely pretty uncomfortable i mean if i don't have like sugar or salt for a day i'm like freaking out i know (laughs) i know it's unbelievable the sugar thing it's like it's the that on steroids basically yeah um where you actually got sick in the absence of sugar but like circling back so not to like so the high school thing was um did anyone was like they're like whoa you need to like stop yeah, how did how did this progress from like like so drinking quickly. and smoking pot one night at a party to thirty days later? Like, what's in between? What mm. what happens in those thirty <laughs> days? I could name names, but he'll probably like sue me or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, name it. <laughs> it was uh, it. You know, I knew who just like you growing up. You know, you knew who did what where, and um, I just immediately transitioned from the jocks to the drug addicts, and and found uh, at that time essentially crack and meth that was what was available so then you quit your sports yeah quit everything what were you searching for what were you seeking so um yeah i just suffered you know it was basically my experience was i you know my i i love my father i love my mother and I think you're amazing people if you ever listen to this. And I'm so grateful for everything that you've done. And at one point in my life, what I felt as a child in that environment um, was unwanted, you know, kind of like just not really valuable. Um, and the result of that was I, I remember I had a lot of like fantasies. I spent a lot of time by myself. The The town that I grew up in had about 200 people. Oh, wow. It was on the edge of a town that had about 10,000. So rural, you know what I mean? Um, and I remember I spent a lot of time in the woods by myself and um, had relationships with trees and animals and, you know, just a different kind of upbringing than a lot of folks that I know. And uh, I used to just wish that an alien craft would come and take me back home. Like I, I literally would like go out into the woods and just, and I'd call out to, you know, this mother and father that didn't exist that I hoped existed to take me away and take me back home. Cause I didn't feel like I had a home. And that was what I repetitiously repeated again and again and again and again was like a lack of safety everywhere that I went and I felt an insecurity and how that manifested was anxiety and I shit you not like I walked around with a level of anxiety that was crippling I couldn't talk to people I couldn't socialize I couldn't talk to girls I couldn't talk to guys the only thing that I had the only thing that I had was sports that was my identity that was my everything it was my defense and my protection and they knew me by that everybody Mm -hmm. knew he's good at fucking sports right you know he's good at soccer he's going there he's doing this and that's why i did it you know i needed that um and as soon as i drank all i remember about drinking the first night was i'm doing this you know (laughs) and i remember vividly hitting the pipe right 
And I remember asking, like, am I going to die? But what I felt was relief. I felt relief. I felt anesthetized and in a cocoon and like there was a velvet blanket and, you know, just all the wonderfulness of not worrying, you know? And so that was it. I was like, fuck it. I'm on. I was like, why the fuck did I ever say no to this shit? And someone offered me crack. I smoked crack. I was like, this is amazing. I felt my brain literally die when I smoked it. How much longer was the crack from the first night of drinking? Within a month. And do your parents know you're doing this? Like, did Not they, at all. No, they had no idea that you're smoking crack. No. My folks were what we call, I hope this never gets out, but they were willfully indifferent, which is another type of thing. It's like, so if your parents are willfully indifferent to your needs as a child, meaning they don't pay attention to you intentionally, you have no meaning, you have no value. And so you get cast into this position where you were never fucking beaten, you were never fucking tortured, but you feel the same way. And Indifference, I think, is maybe worse in a way. I, my clinical interpretation is that it is. Yeah. And, and I say this with the utmost respect because I'm not trying to diminish people that have been physically abused. Totally. Um, but like, at least you have a point in time where you're like, that's fucked up. I'm like, well, they didn't help me with my math homework, you know? And there's, I nothing, there's nothing tangible to like grasp onto. Yeah. You know what I mean? But like, even in a romantic relationship, if someone is indifferent to you, if a friend is indifferent, it's so painful. So painful. Yeah. So you, you have to imagine just for a second, I know we're running low on time, but you know, these are the things. We're that, in no rush. Okay. These are the things that, you know, essentially we all end up experiencing. There is no way away from this shit unless you're like intellectually disabled or you're just so unconscious that you don't live on in this world, right? Every other human being on the planet is having some level of this struggle, but what ended up happening was that sense of not mattering coupled with this crippling anxiety um, led me to find relief in substances. And then it rapidly, um, it, it got worse fast. So I ended up, I ended up a heroin addict. Um, <laughs> yeah, I was working as a carny. I was running the zipper. By the way. Oh, um, okay. I love the zipper. Yeah, so I was so I was the king of the zipper for a Yay. long time. I just wow. want you to know. Yeah, I was a carny, and and I was working uh, a show that was like traveling all around wa Washington. I was running from some warrants. I'd been in and out of jail. This was like a disaster time, um, and was still not on heroin. And met this girl. I was on what they call the midway in in the carnival, and this this girl was just beautiful and voluptuous and like all the things like I remember vividly seeing her across the midway and being like wow you know what I mean and we hook up and she's like and I never forget this she's like let's meet in Portland all right we'll meet this is uh we're in Washington we go to Oregon let's meet in Portland I meet her in Portland at the Greyhound station she says I'm a heroin addict I'm going to cop so I follow her onto the city bus. She just comes out and says, My mouth got yours, yeah. And I'm looking in the mirror, going over the Burnside Bridge, and I can see my reflection in the bus window. And I'm thinking to myself, I swear to God, this is what I thought. I'm in love with the heroin addict. What am I going to do about it? And I immediately thought, I'm going to do heroin I'm too. I'm going to do heroin too. <laughs> and that night, we, uh, she... Put some in a needle, broke off the tip, and I snorted it, right? Right into the nose. Next day, I put my arm through a bathroom. She shot me up, and that was it. 
I was on heroin for a long time. Holy shit. Yeah. How long did you stay with her? We were together for a number, a few years. Yeah, it was, uh, and she had like, so like I said, she was really, really attractive. Um, she had been a stripper in New York and like had a bunch of sugar daddies, all this kind of stuff. So we had money coming in. The reason that I say this is that it wasn't, my life almost got better on heroin for a period of time. I wasn't committing crimes. I wasn't uh, out hustling, trying to get drugs. We had a system. The system included money from these people. And I, my only job was to go to a dealer's house and get drugs, you know? And the reason that I say that is because the journey to surrender included access to drugs for me. Like I had all that I needed and really all that I wanted. It was very rare that we would have anything less than enough to get really, really obliterated. Um, but I started wanting to stop. Something happened. I was on a, I was on, I was copying actually on the street and I've always been in love with kids and, uh, it, like a lot of us, you know, kids, like we just love kids and yeah. there was a, a moment where there was a Hispanic mom and her beautiful, beautiful daughter. Um, and I was copying from uh, a dude on the street and he spit out some balloons from his mouth, put them in his hand, put them in my hand and I immediately put them in my mouth. Cause that was just the way that we did it on the street there. And while I'm doing this, this little girl and her mother watch me, right? And I see this little girl do this instinctual thing where she goes behind her mom's legs and sort of peers out at this fucking thing that I am. And I'm like, you know, I got track marks on my neck. My, my, my arms are all bruised up and bloody. Uh, I'm a mess and I smell bad. I hadn't showered because when you're on here, when you don't shower, it's just this whole thing. And so as that happened, as I see this little girl skirt around the edge of her mom's uh, hips, a raindrop hit me right in the corner of the eye. And I hadn't cried for just a number of years. And it was like the universe granting me this tear. And I immediately said, I, w I thought to myself, I want to stop. And then three years later, I still hadn't. And every day I thought, I want to stop. I want to stop. I want to stop. I want to stop. But it's not that simple. It wasn't for me. I, I mean, is it ever? Well, so what ended up happening was that same girl, right? So I try to commit to... So Three years later, I still can't stop. Every day is a fucking miserable hell. We have all the drugs that we need, but I want to fucking die. And three years later, I attempt suicide. A valiant attempt. Very, very valiant attempt. Um, potentially to overdose. Fentanyl wasn't around in my day. It was just cut with other shit. And so I attempt suicide, and I make a call to my cousin, weeping, telling him that I love him. I hadn't spoken to my folks for five years. They actually disowned me at that point um it wasn't talking to anybody and wait that they, they disowned you because of the drug situation yeah, stealing okay. from them and stealing from fr i was literally like the worst kind of person um and so i try to commit suicide i wake up uh almost three days like two and a half days later i wake up right from this intentional overdose and i i'm on a bed and i look over to my right and there's her name was guava by the way, I didn't tell guava? you that. Guava? <laughs> wow. There's Guava wearing a silk robe, right, with her voluptuousness, right? And she's cooking some dope. And she says, babe, I've got something for you. And I look at the clock, and it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon. And I say no. And I haven't used since. That was August 2nd, 2000. Wow. What? Yeah, non-medical detox. just like that? 
So what ended up happening was that cousin that I called and said, I love you, I love you, I love you, had called, was so worried about me, and I must have sounded just terrible, that he called my aunt in San Diego. I was living in Oregon. This was all in Portland. My aunt in San Diego was a, a public, uh, like a lead public defender, like a, an administrator in the public defender's office, and she had some pull. She got me a ticket down to San Diego. I was on a plane later that night with no ID. She got me on a, a this was actually post or pre 9-11, right? And got me on a plane with no ID. I seized on the plane, was wheeled off the plane in a wheelchair. No and, shit. And yeah, and, and went through multiple treatments, none of them medical. They didn't give me any medication. Yeah, how rough is detox from heroin when you're not? It wasn't the heroin for me, it was the methadone. I was on, at that point I was on mm. heroin, methadone, and, and benzodiazepines. Do you ever take like a clonopin or anything like that or like an Ativan or Xanax? Nothing. I swear no, to God. No, neither one of us. <laughs> <laughs> I've smoked Sorry. weed. I've eaten some shrooms and like dropped some acid. I was taking uh, dozens of milligrams of Xanax and clonopin. So like I used to, I had a yellow pad and I would mark it. I'm so sorry this has turned into a drunk But my point is that I was in a really bad situation physically and I had a non-medical detox and I still kept saying no, 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 That's no, no. That's incredible. The journey to surrender. What happened to Guava? Yeah. She, uh, one of her arms was amputated from a bad injection site, and I don't know any more than that. I have another oh. question, a very superficial question, mm -hmm. because you describe her as being so beautiful and attractive, and I just, um, how is it attractive when someone is so fucked up and, like, is it because you're on the same level? Yeah, I mean, I was, I was we were equal in that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't, I mean, today, if I saw guava today, I would be sad, right? And meaning, like, I see people all the time coming to Method, especially, I think, and I say this because there's a different path for women and men. I know that sounds crazy, but a lot of times women have resources in their physicality that men don't have in the long run. So we say sometimes that, that women can stay out longer because they have more resources and that men sometimes are willing to sort of, and I know this sounds like, what do you a, mean by that? Like they have their bodies and men are attracted to women. Like they can use their bodies to mm. get, even if need. it's not like selling their bodies. Right. But like, yeah, yeah, I yeah, can yeah. hang out with somebody of and course. get drugs. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that's the power. That's one of the many pluses of being a female. Yeah. And I should say, you know, and men can do that. Right. And it doesn't matter what sexual orientation you are or any of that stuff. But as a general rule, women have the capacity in our society to stay out longer. Yeah. And so today when I see um, women like guava, which I do a lot, um, you know, what you're looking at is, is almost inevitably deep, deep trauma, almost always sexual in nature. And they're um, suffering, you know, and it's, it's really difficult because if there's one area where you need specialty, it's in dealing with different issues, especially across genders. So like I may know a lot about trauma. I may be able to recognize it, but Laura knows this in, in the way that I operate. But the way that I operate at Method is those women immediately go to other women. Yeah. Like we immediately... Safe space. Safe space. And so then what I represent is merely a safe man, right? Mm -hmm. But not a clinician, not a, not a person that's working with them on those issues because it, it's just impossible. Because then it can become more like a father figure, right? Correct. And they're already like, going to project all that shit on you. Yeah. Okay. So, well, what's... Do you see like a common theme of what type of trauma brings people in to get treatment? Well, so no. Um, so we have, so here's, here's what we've come to understand about trauma. Number one, it's physical. 
So you store trauma in the body. Um, somatic theory kind of proved that. You've learned that with the yoni massage episode. Wonderful. That you okay. Did they talk about hips? No, no. but you do. So, oh, so from it's a like, personal trainer standpoint, you store a lot of trauma in your psoas, mm -hmm. in your glute medius, mm -hmm. and in your hips. Yeah. So if you get, you can get, not a massage, but like you can get someone to like dig into your psoas because we hold so much tension there. And most of it is from trauma and from emotion. So you can literally get someone to like, it's very, very uncomfortable yeah. to say the least. Yeah. But you'll see people on the table getting massaged and their psoas loosened up. And they literally, like, I remember the first time it happened to me, I'm sure it was a mixture of like emotion and pain because <laughs> it's very uncomfortable, but you can, you tear up. Yeah. I mean it we hold a lot there. Yeah, we really do. And, and so one thing I should mention is, so method does body work too. So we're doing all this stuff in the gym and then we have some really, really skilled, essentially massage specialists that are very effective and we get into the body and it's crazy what happens. But, um, so the idea is that trauma is stored in the body. Um, believe it or not, letting go is actually forearms. So if you ever want to actually manifest acts, you know, exercises that, sort of allow you to maybe let go of something. You'll notice even as I did that with my hands, you see the deep breath that I took. Like there are things that physiologically are integrated into the emotionality of, of, of our existence. And um, trauma is one of those weird intrinsic components that seems to always manifest in the body. So to answer your question, it's not sexual trauma. We now call it uh, big T traumas and little T traumas. So big T traumas are... You know, seeing someone murdered, uh, violence, sexual abuse, physical abuse, uh, sort of direct, uh, uh, you know, risk to your health, your welfare. And we have client, we have had clients who have seen these things, yeah. who have witnessed oh, these okay, types of sure. trauma. So it's not like as crazy as it sounds, like seeing someone murdered or sec like it's not that uncommon. Yeah, it really you is. know, that, yeah. Mm -hmm. And the little T trauma is willful and different of parents you know it's it's the um it's the abusive boyfriend girlfriend that just never lets you gaslights you all the time you know it's like these other things that um are just as damaging if not sometimes a little bit more and they require the same sort of treatments um between us girls just for a second like trauma is becoming the new flagship 100% of the, you know, this is the bipolar of a decade ago. Everybody mm. was fucking bipolar a decade ago. And then before that, everybody was a, a ADHD. Everything mm -hmm. is trauma, right? So before we follow that ship, you know, down that rabbit hole, um, I think, I really think that this is my experience. My experience is that I spend most of my day trying to remember that we are more connected than we are separated because what we end up feeling is essentially like alone, you know, like, and if we really like got behind the curtain of each other's lives and defense mechanisms and ways of being and all this kind of stuff, we're going to find the same things. Like I like you and you like me. It's just that simple. It's like we genuinely tend to like each other when we get to know each other, but in a place like LA or even anywhere, it's, there's so much, you know, honking of horns and just disconnect that we don't get the opportunities to 
formulate those connections. And so I spend a lot of my day just trying to remind myself that like you're you and I'm me and that's cool, you know? And I think that um, that more than anything else, connection and lack of connection are probably the biggest variables that manifest in those that suffer from addiction, continue in addiction or stop. You usually stop when you develop a connection to something else. Um, almost always it's going to be human beings. You know, it rarely is like plants. I mean, know? that's what we seek out just as human beings, yeah. period, right? That's what we're constantly seeking, whether it's in the form, if it's in the form of family and friendship, um, lovers, whatever it might be, we're constantly seeking that, seeking that connection. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why you brought up LA. That's why people have such a hard time with like, oh, uh, LA is so tough sometimes. Like it's hard to find friends. It's hard to date. Well, it's only hard because we have those masks on and because we're constantly like in this lane of like, go, go, go. But I'm like you said, when you put that down, when yeah. you, when you take that mask off, it's, we're all kind of the same. Yeah. I mean, and so if you go back to, you know, walking up to the high school that I remember and seeing those blue doors and feeling like someone had wrapped a noose around my neck and I couldn't breathe to today, as silly as I kind of am and as odd and as eclectic and sort of like, as I am, um, I find that when I'm myself and I'm authentic to myself, you tend to treat me well and you tend to like me. And even when something negative happens, I'm able to kind of brush it off. It sort of rolls away. It's not me. You know, it's like, I love you just the same, even though it's a bad day for you kind of a stuff. Um, and that's not perfection. That doesn't happen in every moment. Sometimes I'm, I actually got out of a car recently to knock somebody the fuck, you know, I was like, what the fuck? Dude, <laughs> what you um, so, you know, like these are not perfections, um, but they are goals. You know, they're definitely goals. I'm going to take a sharp left turn mm -hmm. because I think this is something we really need to touch on if we're talking about rehabs. Um, there is a stigma with rehab facilities that they're just there for the money, just mm -hmm. trying to bring in money consistently, no matter what, mm -hmm. right? Um, I'm very proud to work for a method because I don't think that's the case. But just from your point of view, can you kind of touch on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, so well, I was talking with somebody about this. So let, let's say, for example, that everything that I just said was fraudulent. That I think, go ahead, sorry. And I just want to say, I am familiar with that sort of a thing, but start from the basics because Asia and our listeners might not have any idea what I'm talking about. I have no clue. Yeah. Okay. So imagine for a moment that you're a child and you're molested by a stranger. Now imagine that your parents send you to church every Sunday and you're molested by a priest. The priest is worse. So you're in a position where someone that you're, supposed to look up to and trust and is a manifestation in their world of God's presence on this planet is doing one of the most harmful things to you as a child that could ever be done. It's worse. Now, anybody that suffered trauma, please don't take that the wrong way, right? But there's levels to this shit. And in treatment, you have a bunch of people that have the ability, I think, to sound like me who don't give a fuck about you. And that's the problem is that so if I, there's, there's three types of recovery. There's a basic recovery where I get general improvement. That's harm reduction. 
There's a mid-level recovery where I kind of intermittently use, right? But I don't use as bad as I used to. And there's a full recovery where I become spiritually connected. I'd like to think I have that third recovery, right? That's my mission for our clients that they achieve that third recovery. But let's say that I sounded like I had a third recovery, the full and total recovery. And all I gave a fuck about was whether or not you could pay me. So now as an addict who's distrustful, as someone who suffers from depression and anxiety, who's been distrustful of people and their intentions and their motives, I go to a treatment center and what happens? I repetitiously am compelled to repeat the proof that no one gives a fuck about me. And that happens again and again and again in this field. There's, there's programs that don't care about people's well-being and they're just trying to you know, dot their I's and cross their T's for the insurance company to pay them in order to get as much money extracted from them as a patient as they possibly can. And they'll curb them as soon as the money's gone. Um, there's patient brokering. There's patient brokering. So I was on the legislative side of this. I've been fighting patient brokering for almost 17 years. Explain what that is. So patient brokering is where um, Asia has a f- Asia. Laura needs to go to treatment and Asia knows Cassidy has a rehab and Asia calls Cassidy and says, I'll send Laura who's got $10,000 to your treatment facility. If you give me $2,000 or some amount of money or something, right? So you broker this person, literally broker them to another program or a program. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's many, many different forms of that. Is that illegal or is it just frowned upon? Now it's illegal. Now it's illegal. It's illegal as of this year. Wow. We've been working on this for 17, no, just in California. No, Florida, it's illegal in Florida. It's it's illegal in a few states. Like Um, the big rehab states, I'm guessing. We just got California. Which is incredible because yeah, I mean, think of how many people come here just for rehab. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to Southern California. I, they think they estimate thirty percent of wow. all the people in the country, and we just got it passed. And you know, I, it's the other side of that coin. And I'm going to say this with the utmost respect to those that are applying at treatment centers, is that you know, listen, you can hear this podcast. You can be listening right now, and essentially, you can tell right from the gate. It's either sincere and authentic, or it's fucking not. Totally. And so, they're making these calls, and people are promising them the moon, the sun, and the stars, and all this kind of crap. Here's a cure for addiction. Here, you're never going to feel bad again. Everything's going to be wonderful in 30 fucking days. And they're buying into it. And that's, that's partly on them, right? Like, if someone said, I'm going to pay you $600 to go to this facility... And then I'm going to pay you $600 to get loaded and leave. And then I'm going to pay you $600 to go to another facility. And I participate in that. As bad as the brokering is on that side of it, you're essentially behaving in your addiction, right? So your journey to surrender is not complete. And as parents who are researching these programs, if someone says something to them that they know in their experience on this planet is not possible. It's like a little bit shady. Yeah. Then you got to, you know, you got to, you got to use your, what I always talk about is use your intuition, you know, listen and use your intuition and, and go to the place that feels intuitively correct. But explain the, I'm going to pay you to go here and then I'm going to pay you to stop and then I'm going to pay you to go somewhere else. I mean, so what these guys are doing um, is there, so the insurance company is exactly what Asia said. They're paying for detox, right? And you got to come off of heroin and they're going to pay for you to do that in a medically supervised way. And if you're not on heroin and you want treatment, 
Well, you're not going to go to treatment. It's just like if you go to the hospital and say, I want treatment for a broken arm that you don't have. The hospital is going to be like, go away. Yeah. So what these guys do is they give you heroin to go into the program. Heroin's good. That sounds wonderful. You get high. You go to the program. You get high on the meds, right? And then they pay you to leave. So they get paid by the facility and they give you some of that money, right? And then they pay you again to get on heroin, go to another facility, get high, go on those meds, rinse, wash, and repeat. No matter where so you dirty. are, there's always corruption somewhere. It's so right. dirty. So, so here's the thing. So here's what happens. So I'll be on a, an intake call, right? And I'll ask someone, well, how many times have you been to treatment? And they'll be like, 20 times this year. Well, we're not the right program for you. That, it's just that simple. If, if someone's been in treatment more than three times in a year, we're not the right program for you. And that, again, it's very overgeneralizing. I'm sure that there are exceptions to that rule. But that's just game in the system. And, you know, so it's a both sides of a coin issue. It's on the brokering side, but it's also addicts are manipulative and or they have a tendency to be manipulative and they'll do whatever they can to get high. So they'll get high in a treatment center as soon as they get high on the street. Is there like a relationship between treatment centers and pharmaceutical companies? So yeah, let me tell you a really sad story. So we used to have what was called abstinence-based treatment. And the purpose of abstinence-based treatment was to achieve what I believe to be the most powerful form of recovery for anybody that there is. And that's the willingness to set something aside that is pleasurable. So Freud said that, you know, basically the pleasure principle, right? You've heard about this. Everything that you do in your life is driven by sex. I know it's a little fucking silly, but essentially the pleasure principle in his perspective was that everything that you do in your life is driven by the desire to propagate or the desire to eat, all right? That these basic instincts were so powerful that everything that you did, every fucking behavior that you manifested, the way that you spoke, how you said shit, everything that you did came down to those basic principles, right? So if you, if you kind of look at it from the standpoint of what's happening now, right? So it's essentially, remind me, what, what did you say real fast? Your whole Is question? Is there a relationship between treatment center to centers and pharmaceutical companies? Okay, so we said, let's go with abstinence-based treatment. Everybody that was in recovery was like, we have to set aside the right to the pleasure, right? We have to set aside the right to medications, we have to set aside the right to alcohol. We have to become physically sober completely in order to be present and conscious and connected, right? So Hazelden led the way on that. Hazelden is probably, you've probably heard of them, one of the most, okay, you're like, not at all. No, this is not, not at my, all. Okay. <laughs> Hazelden's a big program. And seven years ago, they started to prescribe Suboxone, uh, essentially a, a heroin replacement medication. And as soon as I saw it, as soon as I saw their medical director co-sign it, I knew the industry was fucked. Because everybody now... It happens all the time now. So now everybody's moving towards, let's medicate the problem. And why do they do that? They do it because it's cheaper to medicate the problem than to spend the time to fix the core issues. So is there a relationship between treatment centers and pharmaceuticals? Yes, but it's a triad. It's treatment center, pharmaceutical company, insurance company. Those three things are, you know, they're all hooked up and dealing drugs and it's, you see the results. I mean, I feel like we always hear about that in our, our podcast interviews. It's how fucked up 
specifically the, the yeah the know, medical industry, medical industry is medical pharmaceutical industry. oh it's totally it's totally fucked okay let me ask you a question do you um think that breath work has the capacity to connect you intimately to a state of mind that is healthy in terms of the perspectives that you have absolutely mm-hmm. when you fucking meditate do you feel better yes well, then why the fuck won't the insurance company pay for a meditation specialist? Because they're they not being can't, paid off. Yeah, they can't live off of that. <laughs> Correct. They need the relationship is between the insurance company and the pharmaceutical company. It's something we've been knowing, though. Like, yes, it comes keep, up in almost every it. single episode that like cash rules. Yeah. No matter what. Right. And so what's the purpose of the podcast? Like if we go down to the core issues and we look at the deep intimate relationship that you have with this process you're going to find that it may be that you have a intense desire to educate people about the injustices that exist in the way that our social hierarchy is set up so let's go back just for a second so you said is it the broker's fault is it the treatment center's fault whose fucking fault is it well let's be honest it's everybody's fucking fault because we all fucking know meds aren't the goddamn answer and this whole fucking country is, is blaming pharmaceutical companies. We're the ones buying the goddamn fucking meds. Consistently. You know, and it's not, just, it's not just about addiction. It's about everything. every single thing. Medications, pharmaceuticals are a band-aid for everything. everything. But at the end of the day, they do not get to the root cause for pretty much any illness. Right? And that doesn't mean that meds are bad. It doesn't mean that we don't want antibiotics. It doesn't, They're necessary. We, we get it. The problem is, is that this us, we want easy fixes. We don't want to do the work. And so we're the problem. And what one method att- attempts to do is to say, no, you're the problem. What other paths can you take? You know, how can you change this paradigm? Right. And Again, it's so sappy, <laughs> but exercise is the indication that says you got to do the work. Well, I think it's more than exercise. I think it's wellness as a whole because without nutri- without proper nutrition, mm-hmm. exercise on its on its own does do something, right? It gives us a huge piece to the puzzle. Mm-hmm. But then you have that nutrition, which is a huge part of your program as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you bring in, like you said, the breath work, Mm -hmm. the meditation, the yoga, things that just encompass wellness and connect the body to the soul. Correct. At the end of the day, like it is basic. Mm -hmm. It is simple. But like that's that's who we are at our core. Yeah. Right. And without that. I mean, without getting back down to the basics, you can't really get anywhere. What would the world be without salt? Right. <laughs> so when someone enters your program, at what point do they leave? Well, that's a great question. I mean, everybody, it's like, it's, it's, so from my standpoint, setting aside like, you know, education and policy and all that kind of stuff, just for a second. So just to kind of tell you what my experience is. I feel like I'm fighting upstream against every other treatment center in the country because my experience over the last 20 years is that treatment centers will tell anybody anything to get them in the door. Oh, like you're cured after 30 days. And it's that exactly. It's like they perpetuate the myth that 30 days is efficient in changing, you know, and 
by the way, it was the, the tobacco companies that came up with the 21 day policy, right? They were just trying to sell, uh, the dermal patches. Remember when cigarettes became all kind of fucked up, they were like, well, take this patch and it's a nicotine cessation program. And in 21 days, right, you're going to break this habit and habits became a 21 day breakable thing. And so treatment centers got on the bandwagon or forming a habit. Right. And so what we, what we, which is fine, it's true, but this is deep seated stuff and it's an ongoing process and you run the risk if you're not in a structured environment of relapsing. And if you relapse, what do you do? You, you start over. It triggers the neurochemistry. Well, there's a very low percentage of people who stay sober if you're in rehab for 30 days. It's like what, like a 10%. So I don't want to say the exact number because I know I'm not correct, but it's around it's that, It's 17 ish percent. For 30 days. With that's a variable. And stay sober. That stay right. sober. Days sober. But once you move up to a 90 day period, it, the Dramatically percentage increases, increases yeah, so, so much. So at 90 days, you're at like 35% and at six months, you're at 70%. And the length of time is uh, five years. But there's also data that says there's a 2% recovery rate. There's nothing, and there's also data that says, and this is on a 30-day program, 2%, 70%, and 25-ish percent. Mm-hmm. So it, it kind of depends on which. I look at the government agencies because I trust, as strange as it sounds, I kind of trust their data more than I trust independent analysis. Um, and their data says essentially 17%. I mean, here's the thing. For... I don't want to make a blanket blanket statement, but for the majority of people, after 30 days, you're starting to feel decent mm-hmm. and you're starting to like really touch on what's happened with you and like what's going on inside. Yeah. I mean, right? it, yeah, you're, it's like, I don't know. I mean, I think 30 days is better than nothing, but so are you a 90-day program or are you a program that says you stay as long as you need to? We stay as long as we need to with independent curriculums and different levels of care. So with us, um, we're set up. The longest patient we've had is about two years. Um, wow. The, yeah. We, yeah. For wow. A couple of years. And the basically you stay uh, with us in a certain level of care for a month and then another level of care called continuing care. And then there's another level of care called extended care. And then there's an independent living environment. And then there's outpatient programs and all these different components. Um, But, you know, some people can't realistically, like, honestly, check into a program for 90 days. Some of the folks that we treat. That's terrifying. It's not just terrifying, but it's logistically infeasible. Like they run Fortune 500 companies or they're, like I said, pro athletes or something. And so there's a limited window. And so we're a good program for them because we're not going to lie and say, well, you're going to get fixed in 30 days, but we're going to set you up with a really strong aftercare program and you're going to get all this information. And so they, they, they're going to stand a better likelihood, but the goal is ultimately as long as you need. So they, they leave when they feel they're ready or when they have to, like if they're working or whatever. Most, most try to get out as soon as they can in the beginning. And then you continue to educate. I don't want to say like give them pamphlets or something, but like email (laughs) them and like, you know, stay in touch and make sure that everything is. When someone comes to us, we spend time to explain why more time might be necessary. You know, when we see, and if it's not necessary, we'll tell you to. Like there, there are a couple of people that I've seen that I've been like, you know, this is enough time and you can go to therapy and, and sort of manifest this new life. Um, but most people I, I like to see in like a 90 day spectrum, you know, and so we got to tell them why. I think it's important for you to explain what happens in the, the four different houses, 
Like what are the different levels of care kind of a thing? So the different levels of care are kind of, um, so you come in, like you said, Asia, it's, it's the detox process. It's are they voluntarily coming yeah. in? They have to, or can someone like drag their ass into it? You can't it? be nope. forced yeah. into rehab. You gotta be here in this state. You gotta be voluntary. Okay. Um, so they first do that medical detox and then they do what we call primary care and primary care is really a, a, to be totally transparent for us. It's really about identifying what those problems are, um, psychologically, psychiatrically, physically. Whereas a lot of programs are like, Oh, we know what the problems are because you told us and now we're going to do this. We like, we don't know how that is even possible because you come into treatment, you've been using drugs or maybe drinking for a long time, been depressed for a long time. And it, it's not like in the first week you like all of a sudden become your bare essential person and we can say, oh, there's the problem, you know. So we've got to kind of unwrap the gift that you are and then sort of like look at what's inside. And um, that's what the first month is kind of about. And then the second month for us is called continuing care. So it's detox, primary care, and then continuing care. And continuing care is where we can really get into the clinical. Um, and that's where once we identify the problem, we know what to treat. You know, we actually know where to focus our clinical attention. And once we start that process, that's actually kind of like, it's what's necessary. Continuing care is one of those programs where some people are in that level for 15 days. Some people are in that level for 50 days. You know, it, it's really, we got to get into the issues and then we've got to give tools to be able to recover from those issues in such a way that you don't go back into alcohol or drugs or self-destructive pathology. And then we have extended care and extended care is really about sort of transitioning from us to the world. Um, more privilege, more freedom, more independence, more, you know, in the world kind of activities so that you can not only experiment with being you now that you're sort of changing in this world, but also, like, what do you want to do? Do you want to go to school? Do you want to go back to work? Do you want to, you know, what do you want to do in your career? Da, da, da. Um, and then if you want to stay longer, you can be in a completely independent living situation where we're just there with you. Um, and you kind of have an outpatient program that you attend five nights a week or two nights a week or three days a week or whatever the case may be. So it's, it's all those different programs. So what's your relationship like with your parents now? Good. So it's funny, I was talking, we just went on an experiential trip with the clients, um, Laura obviously knows, but we went to the mountains and we had mountain biking and fishing and all this kind of stuff. Um, and I had an opportunity to talk with the clients both on the way up and on the way back that I was driving with. And I was, I was telling them, you know, it's like somewhere along the way, first of all, I didn't speak to my dad for 10 years. So that five-year gap that I told you about prior to getting sober, it was five more years of recovery before he was willing to talk to me. So we had a 10-year gap. Um, in that period of time, obviously, I've worked in treatment. I'm in, you know, all this kind of stuff has changed. Um, but it didn't start out good when we reconnected. I actually felt the willful indifference and had an incredible response to it. I was angry that it was there. I was like, still? still we can't be emotional with one another. Like we can't talk about feelings and stuff like that. Um, but then what I did is I started to delve into an individual therapeutic process. And then I, and then uh, essentially I had kids. And once I had kids, uh, something opened within me. It just like, I know this is sound, this sound probably really fucked up, but I felt that kids were like just, the most healing 
powerful experience that I had ever had. And they taught me and they gave me a space to be different. And they gave me the energy and they give me the energy to be just the best that I can be for them. And so when, when I did that, I started to look at when my parents had me. It was like 18 and 20. They were Whoa. 18 and 20 years old. And they Can't were imagine. Yeah, following a commune from Chicago. Um, and what skills did they have? And, and I don't mean this bad towards them, but I don't think they did want me. You know, I think they were fucking kids. And I get it. And it was like, so when I had kids and I looked at it and I was like, wow, I want my kids. But I'm, you know, what did I have them? So Sophie's 10, I'm 44, so 34. So I was 34 years old when I had kids. And I wanted them and, and I, I just, so I, I felt like this like little switch inside me when I had kids that kind of gave me the space to forgive a little bit. Um, and then gradually over time, it just has turned into a situation where they did the best that they could with the equipment that they had. I harvest and hold no anger towards them. And I feel content and comfortable in our relationship today. Any more questions from you? I mean, I just, I am not at all, like, this is my first this time This is a totally hearing. different world. That's yeah. why I want your <laughs> questions. It's a totally like, different world. I don't even know how to process this conversation, <laughs> to be honest. So maybe, like, season two, you'll have to come back. Yeah, and we yeah, might yeah. have to have a follow-up. Finally, like, wrap my head around it. If someone either is struggling with an addiction or they know someone who's struggling with with an addiction, what do you recommend? What do you say to them? Well, I mean, if they're listening to this, then the universe has kind of guided them already, right? So I think that we go to the space that we see the opening to have the change occur. And if you're listening to this, obviously, I think you should probably call myself or Jenna or you or somebody um, I don't know if you'll post a number on the website we or will. however, you know, some method to connect with you. We'll either. definitely yeah. post all your information. Yeah. But also if anyone wants to either take a tour of the property, take a tour of method, um, experience any type of wellness, um, experiential treatment with us, um, you're going to call a number. <laughs> Our beautiful Jenna, uh, will talk to you. She's sitting here right now with us. Um, so I'm going to just say her phone number on here, but then I'll also post it in the notes section. It's 310-694-4085. So you can give her a call and she will uh, set everything up for you. Yeah. And we'd be happy to talk. If anybody, I mean, honestly, if anybody has any issues, one of the things, probably the most unique thing about method is you can call us and we'll just talk. Like you don't have to you don't have to come here to get information. I've tried to really put everything that I've just said out there for people to be able to see on videos. They're very like plain, you know, yeah. but there's places I just want, you can get this information from us yeah. without coming here. You know, I think that's awesome. So, so to wrap up the conversation, if someone's listening, who is an addict, what is something that you would say to them? If, um, what I would say is that a full recovery is possible and to the extent that you allow it, everything that you've heard, given where I've come from, can happen for you. So you can go from that that I described 
to, you know, I'm about to go home and mash on my kid's face <laughs> and talk to my daughter and love my autistic son, you know, and we're going to have some Mexican food and Aww. relax and just kind of enjoy each other. And they enjoy me as much as I enjoy them. And that's fucking amazing, you know? Yeah. Thank Perfect. you. Thank this you so much. so awesome. Thank you for talking to us. Thank you for I having really me. I appreciate it.